are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Hi, everybody. David Guzik here. So glad that you could join me for this week's live question and answer. I don't have the opportunity every Thursday afternoon at 12 noon Pacific time to meet you for a a live question and answer. But whenever I do have the opportunity, I really look forward to it. Now, uh, many of you send me questions uh, on the YouTube channel as comments over Facebook, over whatever other ways, uh, email through the website, whatever it is. And I'm grateful for those questions. I want you to know that if you send us those questions, we try to answer them. And don't despair if I haven't answered your question yet. Don't be afraid to send it in again if you think I've forgotten. But what we do is on the weeks that I'm not able to do a live question and answer time, what we do is we compile those questions and we get to them when we can. And on some upcoming video we do. I always like to lead off our live question and answer program with a question that's come in as a a YouTube comment or maybe over Facebook or whatever it might be. Uh, I I like to start off with one that I think asks a good question that I I just want to address. And today's lead question for the question and answer day comes from Dana. And Dana asks this question. Dana asks, do we always support the Jewish people? Now, maybe I should get a little bit more into the question, asking it just as Dana asked it like this. Asking a question, by the way, I don't know if Dana's a man or a woman, Dana, Dana, I I don't know. Anyway, Dana, Dana, here's the question. Do we have to stand for all Jews as a collective, as Christians? If there are Israeli Jewish people that practice terrible sins or crimes, do we not say anything against them in fear of going against God's chosen people? How are we to regard Israel and Jewish people in the correct way in our present day? Dana, I think you ask an excellent question. And here's basically what Dana is asking. Dana is recognizing that God puts a uh, choice upon Israel to have a place in his plan. He's promised blessing to those who bless Abraham, curses to those who curse Abraham. And, and I believe that extends to his descendants. So does that mean that absolutely everything that any Jewish person does or that the state of Israel does is correct? Well, that's a great question. And, and let me get to it right here, Dana. First of all, I'd answer this simple question. We should love everyone. We should stand for everyone. Is that not what we're supposed to do as believers? We are to love and stand for everybody. And since it's very easy to include Jewish people and Israel under everyone, um, then we just simply do that. We're happy for what God has done, is doing, and promises to do among the Jewish people and, and all that. But I would say that even though we should love everyone from every country, we should love people from every ethnic group, we should love Italians, we should love Russians, we should love the Chinese, we should love uh, any kind of smaller ethnic group that you can think of. We, we should love the Arab people. We should, God has called us to love everyone. Jesus Christ is the Savior of the whole world. Yet I would say that we have at least three special reasons 
to love and support the Jewish people. Here's the three special reasons we have that, that kind of make it a little bit different than the rest of the world in the general way that we're supposed to love everybody. Here's the three, three reasons. Number one, God has chosen the Jewish people. He has chosen them to have a special place in his redemptive plan of the ages. As the scriptures say, he did not choose them because they were better. He did not choose them because they were holier. He did not choose them because they were a greater nation than anybody else. God chose them because he chose them, because he wanted to choose a man named Abraham and his covenant descendants, because Abraham had descendants that weren't of the Abrahamic covenant. But the covenant descendants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who was later named Israel, and the people that would come forth from those three patriarchs of the Jewish faith, God chose them to have a special place in his redemptive plan. For that reason alone, the Jewish people deserve some special love and attention for us, because it is not always easy for the Jewish people to be his chosen people. It means not only have they had a special if you will, privilege of being in his plan, but they've also had a special responsibility. There have been Jewish people who have asked through the ages, God, couldn't you have chosen another people? And uh, we can see why, because there's a special blessing upon the Jewish people, I believe, but there's also a special responsibility. Now, there's a lot more to say about that, but number one, we have special reason to support the Jewish people because of God's choice of them and their place in his redemptive plan of the ages. Number two, we have a special reason to support the Jewish people because God promised to bless those who bless them and curse those who curse them. Now, <coughs> excuse me, this particular promise is made in Genesis chapter 12, where God promised Abraham, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. Now, there are people who believe that that promise applied only to Abraham, Abraham alone in singularity, and not to his covenant descendants. I would disagree with that because that promise was made in the context of God's covenant with Abraham. I believe it applies not only to Abraham, but to his covenant descendants through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I think you see it throughout history. People and nations that have made a deliberate effort to bless the Jewish people have been blessed. People and nations who have made it a deliberate strategy to curse the Jewish nation, the Jewish people, uh, Israel, have been cursed. I think this is almost, and I say that word thoughtfully, almost a law of history. You see the empires and the people who have persecuted and opposed the Jewish people, uh, within a period of time, whether it's short or long, they get their comeuppance. And that's a second reason why we have to support the Jewish people. Let me give you a third reason, I believe, why we have to support the Jewish people, particularly as the church. It's because of the shameful history of Christian persecution. Now, do you know what I mean by that? <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Pardon me for that coughing. Let me get a drink of water here. <clears throat> Many Christians in the modern world are unaware of the shameful history of Christian persecution. Christian persecution of the Jewish people. Basically, <coughs> again, pardon me. Basically, for many centuries, the church 
Christendom were the worst enemies that the Jewish people had. Brothers and sisters, that's shameful. That is something that I am so happy that it is almost completely in the Christian world today. I say almost because it's not complete. But by and large, that is completely different in the Christian world today. And I think that is an appropriate repentance for Christians to make for the many centuries in which the church was the enemy of the Jewish people. You see, there's a, a strange theology, if you can even call it a theology, behind all of that, um, because the strange theology behind it is simply this. Christians believed that uh, the Jews would be cursed because they rejected Jesus as their Messiah. And they felt that if Christians brought that curse to them, that maybe they would repent sooner. It's a crazy idea. I would even say it's a demonic idea. The, through the centuries, the, the Christian church should have been trying to bless the Jewish people, bless the nation of Israel, but it did not. Now, it is true that in the very opening decades of Christianity, you'll find this record in the New Testament, in the very opening decades of Christianity, Jewish religious leaders persecuted Christians. It's true. You find it in the book of Acts, and you find it just in history. But that is almost microscopic in a historical context compared to how historically Christians have persecuted Jews. So, brothers and sisters, I would say for three reasons, the Jewish people deserve our special support. God chose them. He has a place in their plan. He's made a promise to bless those who bless them and curse those who curse them. And then number three, remembering the shameful history of Christian persecution against the Jewish people. Now, having said all of that, let me follow up with a couple things. Two things. Number one, supporting the Jewish people does not mean that the government of Israel is always right in everything that they do. Israel is governed by human beings, not by angels. And so they are not always right in everything that they do. And it's not wrong to point that out. If the state of Israel, the government of Israel does something wrong, it's not unfair for the fairly, not condemning unfairly or excusing unfairly what the Jewish people do or what the state of Israel, I should say, does, the government of Israel. And, and I think this is the problem. In my opinion, I know this can be debated. But in my opinion, the government of Israel, the state of Israel, is usually singled out and condemned unfairly. Um, I, I know at times they are also excused unfairly, but I, I think that the nation of Israel normally does things that any nation would do to protect themselves and in their own self-interest, and the world condemns them for that. But however— we are not trying to say that we support, when, when we support the Jewish people or the government of Israel, it does not mean that they are right in everything that they do. No. Now, I, just one more thing to say about that, though. Listen, when you compare Israel to other nations, I don't know of a single other nation in the world. There may be one, but I don't know about it. I don't know of a single other nation in the world where the world opposes the very existence of that nation. And that's the state of Israel today. There is a sizable community in the international world that opposes the very existence 
of Israel. That makes it different. And I think that is one of the ways it is unfairly singled out. So supporting the Jewish people does not mean that the government in Israel is always right in what they do. And then number two, we don't agree with the idea that says to support Israel and the Jewish people, it means that you must hate the Arabic people and hate the Arab nations. No, never. We will love Israel and the Jewish people, and we will love the Arabic peoples and the Muslim peoples of the Middle East and beyond and the Arabic nations and the Middle Eastern nations. In Jesus' name, we're going to love everybody. So we're not going to be confronted with this false dichotomy. If you really love Israel, you're going to hate the Arabs or hate the Middle Eastern nations that may oppose Israel from time to time. Nope, we're not going to fall in that trap. We are not going to love and support the Arabic peoples and hate Israel, nor are we going to love and support Israel and hate the Arabic nations. No, in Jesus' name, we're going to love everybody. So that, that's kind of the answer, Dana. I hope that's helpful for you. I see we've got some uh, questions here in the chat window. Let me get to them, and uh, I hope that is at least helpful for you. Uh, Nagisi says, Shalom, Shalom, man of God. Amen to that. Abraham says, I finally made it on time to one of these. Thank you, David. Colin says, where should we draw the line with what Bible teachers we listen to and learn from? Colin, that is a great question. And let me repeat it just for everybody. Where should we draw the line with what Bible teachers we listen to and learn from? And Colin, I'm just here to say that that is a question that is somewhat different for every individual in Jesus Christ. And this is why I say that. It's different because of the maturity level of different believers. I do a fair amount of listening to people that I think are crazy, people who are heretics. I want to know what they teach. They're not going to shake me in the biblical faith. I can listen to those people that I disagree with and evaluate what they say and be able to answer what they teach accurately. I, I think it's very important that whenever we're doing apologetics, we need to deal with things accurately. We, we can't uh, make arguments against things that are inaccurately stated. So, um, for me and for many other believers, it's really not a problem to have what you might call a broad reading list or list of teachers that we listen to, because we're able to really discern and sift. Now, you take believers who don't have the same amount of maturity, who don't have the same amount of discernment, they need to be more careful in their reading list, so to speak. So, Colin, I, I would just say that this is one of the reasons why people need good and godly pastors in their life, shepherds with whom they can bounce off different ideas and get a, a handle on someone who can look at their life and understand their sort of level of spiritual maturity and answer just in that way. So, Colin, I, I, again, I would just get back to the idea that I can't give a definite answer to your question, where should we draw the line with what Bible teachers we listen to and learn from? 
um, because uh, it, it's it's a question that's somewhat different for different people according to their maturity. I, I will say this though, Paul wrote this to the Corinthians. He said, "You have many teachers, but you do not have many fathers." Now it would be great to talk all about that in context of what Paul meant there, but I, I draw a spiritual application from that statement of Paul. There may be many people that I can pick up a good idea from. They, they teach me something. I may have many teachers, but make no mistake about it, I know who my fathers in the faith are. I know the men, both living and already gone to heaven, who are my models, my role, uh, the, the examples unto me, the, the people who have taught me, both by specific word and also just in attitude, uh, what it means to be a pastor, what the truth is and why we support it. And, and, and uh, I know who my fathers are. And as far as people that I may learn a thing or two from, well, that list is considerably broader than who my fathers are in the faith. Right, let me continue on. Master Skywalker says, what is going on with the division of Calvary Chapel? Are there some important doctrinal differences? I love old school Calvary Chapel. Well, Master Skywalker, uh, let me say, uh, I have uh, friends, I have brothers uh, uh, broadly throughout our Calvary Chapel family. But let me just say this, I love the core principles and ideas of Calvary Chapel. Maybe it would be great to do a video on that sometime and kind of explain my understanding of what those things are. I have to say, I don't see greater division and greater um, friction among our Calvary Chapel brothers and pastors in the larger sense over the past year or months. Uh, but I think it's just something we should be able to know who we are, know what God has called us to be, and treat other people with love and respect. So I, I don't really have like a—I know you didn't mean it this way, but I don't have like a gossipy answer for you. Well, this person said that, that person said another thing. Um, I, I just uh, think that um, there's a lot of men that I love and respect in the broader Calvary Chapel family, and I love whatever association I can have with them. Okay, next question. Joel says, hi, David. Do you think that the gospel according to Matthew was initially written in Hebrew? Again, Joel's question is, do I believe that the gospel according to Matthew was initially written in Hebrew? Uh, Joel, I think that's very unlikely. Uh, again, I've read a few people try to argue for that. It just doesn't seem likely to me as I've examined the evidence. I, I really don't have the whole matter in mind uh, to, to spell out the different sides of it, to say that Matthew was written in Hebrew, or probably more properly in Aramaic, um, because technically in Jesus' day, Hebrew was really, uh, at that time, not really a popularly spoken language, really just kind of for priestly ceremonies and such as that, but Aramaic was popularly spoken. Um, I, I just haven't seen persuasive evidence of that for me. So no, I, I, I wouldn't agree with that idea. Um, Carlette Moser, do you feel safe when you visit Israel? <laughs> Carlette, let me say, absolutely, positively, I feel safe when I visit Israel. I'm going to be going to Israel three times next year, 
And uh, we are going to have an enduring word tour of Israel that my YouTube audience is definitely invited to go to. If you want to check it out, go to EnduringWord.com slash Israel. Now, I'm also going to be leading a tour in connection with Calvary Chapel Santa Barbara. Pastor Tommy Schneider and myself are going to co-lead a tour in November. The Enduring Word Tour is in September. The Calvary Chapel Santa Barbara Tour is in November. I'd love for people to join either one of those. But uh, I feel perfectly safe when I go to Israel. It's a little hard to describe, but um, I, I, I haven't felt threatened or worried at all. Especially the tour guides that are with the groups have a lot of experience, a lot of wisdom, a lot of local, local knowledge, and a passion to make it a wonderful experience for the entire group, and that includes their safety. So yeah, Carlette, I say absolutely positively. So much so that, as I just mentioned, I'm going to be headed to Israel three times in the coming year. Okay, uh, Thabiso says, how do we handle friends who later became atheists? The scripture says has no light, uh, no commune, says light has no commune with darkness, but also if we push them away, they don't get to hear the word from us. Okay, Thabiso, I think that's a great question. How do we treat people who were once believers and now they claim to be atheists? I think that we're real about the fact that they're not believers, and we treat them as unbelievers. Now, how are we supposed to treat unbelievers? We're supposed to love them in the name of Jesus. I think that's a very important principle for us. We love unbelievers in the name of Jesus, but we don't pretend that they're believers. We think, how can this person be one to Christ? How can I pray for them? Holy Spirit, would you give me a word to speak to them, a, a scripture to quote to them, or do you just want me to pray? But we are very intentional and serious about praying them, and if God gives us a spirit-led opportunity to speak to them about the kingdom. Um, so there's nothing wrong with treating them as unbelievers as long as we recognize that we're supposed to love unbelievers and love them in Jesus' name. Okay, I got a question here from Andrea. Andrea, nice to hear from you. The star that the wise men followed, did that just appear for that special time, or do you believe that the star is still up there? Has it always been part of creation? Andrea, that's a great question, and let me just give you the answer that is the most proper biblically to say. It's simply, we don't know. The scriptures don't tell us. It's something that kind of excites our curiosity, and it's wonderful to think about this, but we don't know. To me, it seems that the nature of the star, as it's described, is so um, unique that it seems to me to be something that was made for special order, and maybe even that it moved like a comet or a meteor. If we remember, I'm just kind of turning casually here to Matthew chapter 2, where it says, We have seen his star in the east, and we've come to worship him, uh, because they came from the east. And in some sense, they saw a star that prompted them to come. Now, after they met with Herod, it says, When they heard the king—I'm reading now from Matthew chapter 2, verse 9— when they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east 
went before them until it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. This is not a normal star. This moves, this guides in some particular way. So that kind of gives me an indication that we're talking about something that was specially created for this purpose. Maybe God set a particular comet or meteor on its course. Uh, maybe God did something that we just don't have the creativity to think of. But Andre, that's normally how I would think about it, because Matthew does describe as the unique nature and movement of this thing that it calls a star. Agnes has a question. Why didn't God reveal himself in all of his glory when he first created Adam and Eve, since they didn't know any sin? I mean, like described in Daniel 7. Agnes, that's a great question. Again, I'll just repeat it for those who are listening. Why didn't God reveal himself in all of his glory when he first created Adam and Eve, since they didn't know any sin? I mean, like is described in Daniel 7. Agnes, I, I just got a suggestion for you. Maybe he did. You know, we know that Adam and Eve had very natural fellowship with God. That's indicated by the phrase used in Genesis chapter 3, that God walked with them in the cool of the day. That assumes a very natural relationship. And it could be that because of the sinless nature of Adam and Eve at that time, they were able to bear and relate with God in a natural way, even though he was radiant with glory. I guess what I'm just trying to say, Agnes, is we don't really know. And so maybe it was. Maybe at the very least, it was something like how Jesus appeared at the transfiguration. Agnes, do you remember that? That the transfiguration, Jesus's whole being radiated light and glory. And maybe that's some of the idea right there. So um, that's an interesting question, uh, Agnes. Hello, Guno. Nice to hear from you. Um, Ruth, you're very welcome. Abraham, love your neighbor. Yes. Lucia says, hello, everybody. Blessings from Spain. Absolutely. Gunnel says, shalom from Gunnel and Nils in Sweden. Bless you, Pastor David. I have to admit, Gunnel and Nils in Sweden are my mother and father-in-law. Greetings to you. Love you. Blessings to you. Um, Marta asks this question. What do you think about Christmas, Christmas celebration in today's church and in the world? For me, it's mixing pagan tradition with adoration to our God and not very good. Okay, Marta, let me just simply answer your question. I think that if you have a problem in your conscience with celebrating Christmas, you have complete, <coughs> excuse me, you have complete freedom in Jesus Christ to not celebrate Christmas. And there have been Christians throughout the centuries that have refused to celebrate Christmas, such as, to my understanding, many of the Puritans and the pilgrims that first came to America. They didn't celebrate Christmas. The Bible does not instruct us to celebrate Christmas. Neither, in my opinion, does it forbid us to celebrate Christmas. So I would regard this as a matter of individual Christian conscience to simply say, we have liberty in Jesus Christ. We have liberty to celebrate Christmas. We have liberty to not celebrate it, as our conscience may lead us to do before the Lord. 
now, Marta, I'm not trying to oppose you on this, but I'll just give you my opinion. I see Christmas season as a tremendous season of opportunity for believers, because at least in some way or another, attention is drawn to Jesus or potential attention is drawn to Jesus. And isn't that a wonderful thing? It's a wonderful thing for any kind of attention to be drawn to Jesus Christ. So uh, that's my opinion, Marta. But again, if you, in your conscience, feel that it's better for you to not celebrate Christmas, you have the freedom in Christ to not do that. Uh, I agree. Marta Donald says, Jesus says, if we do not forgive others, our Father in heaven will not forgive us. So if a person dies without forgiving a person, does that mean that they lose their salvation? Once saved, always saved. Okay, Donald, I would just simply say this, that you have to take a look at what the Bible says about forgiveness and about salvation in its entirety. And kind of one of the jobs of the Bible teacher, the pastor, the biblical expositor, is to rightly divide the word of truth and to take all of what the Bible says about a subject and kind of bring it together into a, an understanding. And listen, forgiveness is a good work. And we know we're not saved by our good works. We do not earn salvation by our forgiveness of others. However, and this is how I would, I would combine these different ideas in the scriptures. However, it is appropriate, it is fitting, it is right for a forgiven person to forgive others. Now, is it possible that there might be one or two people that a person might die without forgiving? Yes. We don't believe that a person has to die in a state of sinless perfection for them to go to heaven because they're not saved by their sinless perfection. However, I do just want to say that if somebody has a hardened, absolutely unforgiving heart, it may be evidence that they're not saved at all, that they haven't been forgiven at all. So it's not just an easy one-to-one -one correlation. This is actually a question that needs more than just a soundbite or two to answer. But the idea is simply this. Because we have been forgiven so generously by God, we need to be very open to forgiving others. Uh, Susan Morales asked this question. When did animal sacrifices stop? Well, generally, Susan, for the Jewish people, they stopped in AD 70 when the Romans conquered Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. For Christians, you could say that animal sacrifices stopped with the finished work of Jesus Christ. Now, actually, the answer is a little more complicated than that because we see Paul, as an early Christian, participating with some form of animal sacrifice on the temple, some form of sacrifice, but those were things that had nothing to do with atonement. Animal sacrifice for the atonement of sins ended at the cross for believers. As a historical matter, animal sacrifice among the Jewish people ended when the temple was destroyed in AD 70 by the Romans. Uh, just a couple more questions I'll take here. Uh, Levy or Levy says, what's the difference between God's test and his discipline? Levy, actually, there's not much um, there's not much difference between the two. 
discipline may have a little more of an idea of correction in it, but both of them are to test, to train, to develop us in the Christian life. So there's not a lot of difference between the two concepts. And the last question that I'll deal with right here is by Abraham says, if there is a church that is in error with testimonies of heretic cultic practices, yet they make great worship music, should we listen to their music or abstain from it? Okay, um, Abraham, you're touching on, I think, a very important question here. And this is a question that um, I have my understanding of this. Other people disagree. Let, let, me, uh, let me just say, first of all, I totally respect the right of a pastor and the leadership of a church to say, we're not going to sing certain songs in our church because we have questions about where they came from. I believe God gives wisdom to individual pastors, to individual leadership teams of churches to make those kind of decisions. And if a pastor or leadership team feels convinced about that, I'm not trying to persuade them otherwise. Now, I would kind of feel that it's not within their authority to make that as a declaration for all the Christian world, but for their church, yes, God has given them that authority, that ability. I would also follow that out to individual Christians. I know some individual Christians who are troubled by songs that come from particular places, and if that song is going to be sung at a church that they either attend regularly or are visiting, they just won't sing it. They just won't sing it. Again, you have the right as an individual believer to do that. Um, I, I don't think God wants us to do things that would violate our conscience. Now, for me in general, again, I'm saying this isn't an absolute principle, but as a general principle, I look more to the work of art itself rather than the background of the people that the art came from. So I am more interested if a song itself is valid theologically, if it's helpful in worship, if it's a good song, and I don't mean just a catchy beat or a good hook. I mean that uh, for the worship of a congregation, it's edifying, it's glorifying to God, it's biblically correct. If a song is good according to that criteria, it matters to me much less where it came from, if it came from a group that I may not agree with on other things. But again, I think that these are things for individual Christian consciences to grapple with, and I would not try to change the opinion of a pastor or a leadership team that thought differently, or I would not try to persuade differently an individual Christian with their conscience. So that's just kind of it. All right, I, I will take one more thing because Joel asks this. How can we as a community pray for your ministry? Joel, how could I not deal with that question? Okay, pray for me as we make our plans for 2020 that we would just have every resource we need. That means people, that means money, that means uh, strategies, every resource that we need, and all the guidance we need from God to fulfill what God has called us to do especially with the furthering of the translation work in our two focus groups, Arabic and Chinese. We're working on getting my entire New Testament Bible commentary 
translated into Arabic and Chinese. The work is well underway and will likely be completed in 2020. Now we have to think about distribution and getting it out to as broad an audience as possible. You can also pray for this as well. Right now, and I'm saying this in the middle of December 2019, I know that on YouTube people may listen to it years, months later, but at the uh, middle of December 2019, we're in the midst of our end of the year, you know, kind of invitation to people to support Enduring Word in the work financially. And praise the Lord, people are being so generous. We are well underway, well on the way, I should say, of fulfilling our goal. We, we just kind of marvel at how kind and generous people are to support the work. Just pray that God provides through this year-end campaign and through everything else, that God provides all the resources we need to do everything that He's calling us to do. And I'm grateful to everybody who prays for me, for the work of Enduring Word, and uh, uh, of course, I'm grateful for those who can support it financially as well. But thank you for your prayers. That's going to be it for today. Thank you so much for joining me. I hope you can join me on an upcoming question and answer session. I love these times, whether I deliver it to you uh, over a pre-recorded video or a live one like this, I enjoy it a great deal. Thanks for joining me. God bless you. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.